Welcome and thank you all for coming. I'm so happy to see you all here today. Uh, some of you for the second time in this room today. I'm so glad you're here. This is a wonderful occasion. We are really grateful to Sai Prakash um, to have written this book. I have it here. It is available for sale just outside the door. Beautiful book. Imperial from the Beginning, the Constitution of the Original Executive. And we're also delighted to have uh, three panelists from other law schools, Will Bode from Chicago, Sam Azakaroff from NYU, and Tara Helfman from Syracuse. Um, Professor Harrison will introduce them more formally in a moment. Sai uh, joined our faculty in 2009 after serving as the Herzog Research Professor of Law at the University of San Diego Law School. A graduate of Stanford University and Yale Law School, Sai clerked for Judge Lawrence H. Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia and for the United States Supreme Court for Justice Clarence Thomas. Since he's been at UVA uh, since 2009, he has published 15 articles in major law reviews around the country, and his book, Imperial from the Beginning, has synthesized uh, and expanded on the main themes in his work and has brought the study of the presidency in the 18th and 19th centuries to a new level of sophistication. Now, if you did the math there, that's an average of two articles a year plus a book over the last seven years. That's quite a pace he's setting uh, for the rest of us. Um, Sai's book has received much praise Come to the front. Sai's book has received much praise. Uh, one reviewer called it simply excellent scholarship, a designation that we would all be happy to receive. And it's not only reviewers who hold the book in such high regard. Last year, the law school awarded Sai the Roger and Madeline Trainer Faculty Achievement Award in recognition of the book. Sai's work has also generated considerable discussion and influence outside the legal academy. In a study released just a few weeks ago, which some of you may have seen, Sai was listed as fourth, tied with colleague Brandon Garrett, in Supreme Court citations of his work. And he regularly weighs in on contemporary issues of executive power and constitutional structure. In other words, Sai is that impressive scholar who can range from the presidential and constitutional debates of the 18th century right up to those of the present time. On a personal level, Imperial from the beginning is the opposite of the colleague we know and appreciate here at the University of Virginia. Sai has been impressive, important, and influential from the beginning but not imperious. Instead, he has contributed in a candid, good-humored, and intelligent way to the debates that animate the law school and to the scholarship and teaching that are at the heart of our enterprise. He has the good nature and agile intellect to charm anyone he meets, whether interacting as fellow scholars or as friends, whether discussing politics or children. And I want to say um, how happy we are that Sai's wife, Rashmi, and his three daughters, Aditi, Gayatri, and Gauri, are here. We know that if your father has trouble answering any of the questions, he'll just look to you for moral support. Um, Sai is a man for all seasons who represents the pluralistic and open debate 
that are central to our mission here. Events like these are also central to our mission. They allow us to celebrate our colleagues and their accomplishments and simultaneously to expand the horizons of our intellectual community by inviting in scholars with a diversity of views to join us in our open dialogue. So please join me in expressing appreciation in the way we do best with true intellectual engagement for our colleague and for the important ideas and arguments he has contributed to a critical issue of constitutional law. Now I'll turn it over to our Master of Ceremonies, John Harrison. All right, thank you. Uh, I have to first say on a note of, I guess, personal privilege that Sai is partly responsible for the fact that I am here today. Uh, the very first article that I ever wrote, uh, which I started while I was still in law school, was supposed to be co-authored with Sai. <clears throat> uh, he had this great idea that we should write about uh, what is the executive power to, to disobey or not disobey a, a judgment from the courts. And we started working on it, and partway through, uh, Either out of uh, horror at what I was doing or generosity, I'm still not quite sure. Sai encouraged me to just sort of go off on my own and, and keep doing it. Uh, and then I decided I was sort of addicted to it, and I just kept doing it and doing it. And that led to being a law professor and led to me being here. So uh, just say it's sort of a thrill to finally come back and uh, I guess like Darth Vader. When I left him, I was but a learner. <laughs> we'll see who's the master. Uh, so I have three things to say about the book, uh, two of them negative, one of them positive. Um, of course, in Chicago fashion, we believe in getting to the negative right away, so I'm going to do that. Uh, the title of the book, the object of the book, and the book. So the title first, The Imperial from the Beginning. As I read the book, I have to say I wonder whether the title is fully apt, and even the, the opening of comparing the king to a monarch and arguing, or the president to a monarch and arguing that the president really has these royal and, and monarchical qualities. Because <clears throat> the, as Sai points out, the model for Article 2 was partly the King of England, was partly the British monarch, but also the British colonial governors, call that the viceroyal prerogative, I guess, rather than the royal prerogative, state governors, the Continental Congress. There's a range of different models for executive power in England and in uh, the states all of which uh, the framers of Article 2 were playing with and trying to figure out 
what to do with the executive of their new institution. And in some ways they're reacting, and Sai says all this, to both the both the the British experience and the state and colonial experience. So the the idea that what we've found in Article Two is is the king uh, seems to me not quite apt. That really um, there's something about both the king and the governors and the people who ran the Continental Congress, and it's this blend of different executives, all of which I think Sai finds finds in Article Two. So so I wonder why it's imperial from the beginning rather than uh, maybe there's no other good title for it, and that's why I don't have a book. Uh, but there's something. It seems to me there's something actually much bigger to Sai's thesis than the title. Than the title might indicate. It's not just about kings. The second thing I want to talk about uh, is the object of study. So as I understand Article Two, and I think Sai agrees with this, the executive power is a is a giant, residual, partly conceptual, partly historical category of powers, uh, sort of defined by the models I was just talking about. Uh, what were the king's prerogative powers in England? What are the powers generally exercised by the governors in the colonies and the states, et cetera? Like, that's sort of a big batch of stuff that everybody saw as the executive power. That's what lets Madison in the Federalist Papers talk about whether the Constitution does or doesn't adhere to sort of give the executive power to the president. Because everybody knew what the executive power was. It was a big batch of pre-existing powers. And the Constitution vests that big batch in the president except to the extent that other parts of the Constitution reallocate it elsewhere. So the treaty power takes what might have otherwise been a royal prerogative and gives part of it to the Senate. The appointments clause gives what might have otherwise been a, a executive power and gives part of it to the Senate. The war power, various congressional regulatory powers, the taxing power, the power to raise armies, et cetera. So the Constitution sort of has, has this big batch of executive power as a default, and then there's a bunch of reallocation. I think I think Sai agrees with all that, and we both agree the vesting clause has this substantive content, and that's how to kind of read it into the to the Constitution. But if that's right, then the big question I think is how much of that power has been reallocated elsewhere. And so the two questions: what was that original category of executive power, and then how much of it has been reallocated elsewhere? And Sai's book mostly focuses on the first question what sort of was traditionally understood to be in the executive power question, and much less of it is about, uh, about the reallocation. And to figure out the answer to the reallocation question, we actually need to look not at Article 2, but at Congress and Article 1, right? To trying to figure out what is the, the president's power to do things, and especially to ignore various statutes, which, which are in the book, uh, trying to figure that out without looking at Congress is sort of like trying to do districting of, of one district in the state without looking at the other districts in the state, they're gonna be on the other side of the border, or trying to plot out your, you know, your boundary of your property with your neighbor without taking into account the size of their plot. Um, so it's not, it's not Hamlet without the prince. Uh, the prince is all over the book, there's lots of the prince. But it is sort of Hamlet without Claudius, I guess, the person who might be the foe of the prince. Uh, and we, I, I think we do, need, we do need him in the play too. So what, uh, is included in Congress's power to declare war. You know, how much, how many incidents does that include that take away things that would otherwise be part of the executive power and the commander-in-chief power? How much does Congress's commerce power include non-economic intercourse with foreign nations and Indian tribes that then includes things that would otherwise be in the executive power over foreign affairs? What about Congress's power to create offices, uh, 
How much does that include things that would otherwise be in the executive powers of appointment and removal? Uh, for example, at the founding in 1789, so in the first Congress, during the fight over who, you know, who would have the power to remove office, the Department of State, officers in the Department of State, one of the representatives said, uh, given that the Constitution doesn't, you know, given what the Constitution says, given the allocation of Congress's power to create offices in the Necessary and Proper Clause, it seems to me that it depends on the will of the legislature to say how the department should be constituted and established by law. It depends on the will of the legislature to say the conditions upon which he shall enjoy the office. We can say that he shall hold it for three years from his appointment or during good behavior, or we can authorize the president to remove him. But it's, but it's up to us. So I think we need to know about how big Congress's powers are to know whether those kinds of claims are right. Because the size of those claims, the size of Claudius, will tell us something about how much is left for the executive branch. And then we especially need to know about the necessary and proper clause, right? The power that gives Congress the power to enact all laws necessary and proper for carrying into execution powers vested in other officers and departments of government, like the executive branch. Right? We need to know how much does Congress's necessary and proper clause, the sweeping clause, let it come in and pass statutes that regulate things that would otherwise be within the executive power. So Sai talks about the necessary and proper clause a little bit uh, and raises some good reasons to doubt that Congress's necessary and proper clause is super broad, uh, is a sort of sweeping regulatory authority to regulate everything the executive might, might do. That would sort of allow them to undo other things that seem to be present in Article 2. Uh, fair enough. But I found myself wondering, uh, could I really come to rest on this? And therefore, could I really figure out how much executive power the executive has without sort of working through the alternative? So in previous work, Sai has suggested that this necessary and proper clause is derivative of the president's power. So Congress has to exercise it in coordination with and not in opposition to the president. That is, it's sort of a a helper clause rather than a master clause. Congress can only pass laws necessary and proper to carrying into effect the executive power if sort of the executive branch likes them or if they're, they're in coordination with his power. But so this view has challenges too. So I found myself wondering, would it mean if we started playing it out that Congress can't provide any kind of judicial liability for executive misconduct? Would it mean that the Federal Tort Claims Act is unconstitutional? Uh, to the extent that Congress has ratified Bivens through the Westfall Act, is that unconstitutional? Right? This is the people who are not in federal courts land. This is the panoply of various statutes that say that when executive officers either break the law or violate the Constitution, they can be held to account. They weren't necessarily part of the founding era uh, fabric of law. And so if Congress's necessary and proper clause doesn't authorize them, I'm not sure, I'm not sure anything does. Similarly, if the Necessary and Proper Clause is narrow, as Sai suggests at the end of the book, what does that mean about, about rules for courts? There's a whole bunch of uh, federal statutes that regulate procedure and, and procedure and proceedings in the federal courts. In 1825, Chief Justice Marshall confronted the constitutionality of these statutes and said they were fine. Uh, he said, the Judiciary Act uh, empowers the, has a bunch of regulations of practice. It certainly will not be contended that this might not be done by Congress, and went on about why he thought that was obviously fine. Um, so again, uh, this is Congress's power over the courts, but in a sense, I think we need to figure out whether that's right, the size of Congress's power over other branches, before we know whether the president can uh, ignore a statute that, set, that puts somebody else, that you know, tells another officer what to do, that it, 
whether he can ignore a statute that sets a term of years for the officer's conduct, whether he can ignore a statute that says how to conduct a war, whether he can ignore a statute that sets qualifications for appointees. You know, a bunch of the a bunch of the executive power question is really a question about Congress. Uh, and I found myself wondering more and more what the vision of Congress is. Similarly, um, if we try to have some view uh, that Congress can only regulate the president's powers when they're in coordination, when they're cooperating rather than opposed, how would we measure coordination? You know, is it enough that the president signs whatever bill it is that Congress has in mind and that provides the president's cooperation? He agreed to create this office, uh, he agreed to commission this, of this officer. If so, then most congressional regulations of presidential power might become constitutional after all, because many of them were actually signed uh, by the presidents, other than the Tenure in Office Act, the War Powers Resolution, a few other things. But uh, I found myself wondering that. Or can a new president unconsent? Sort of what's the vision of the conflict between them? Anyway, this is all sort of, this all occupies the last sort of chapter of, of Sai's book. It's the obvious direction we're headed. So maybe this is just the next book, uh, in which case I'm eager to read it. And there might be ways out of all these problems. I started wondering about whether you know, we should have a, a vision of the necessary and proper clause that differentiates between, uh, let's say, really important great powers and lesser powers that might, uh, that might be more easily implied, whether we could differentiate between the president and lower officers, between the Supreme Court and lower courts. But whatever the answer is, uh, it seems complicated and hard. So why do I say all this? Why am I talking about the Necessary and Proper Clause? Sai's main response to why uh, executive power, uh, to why he doubts this sort of broad sweeping view of the Necessary and Proper Clause is that it's beset by a lot of difficulties uh, and seems to raise sort of untoward consequences. And that seems fair enough. But it might be that's true of all of the plausible positions about the Necessary and Proper Clause we've figured out so far. All of them might be uh, beset by difficulties. And maybe that's just because the separation of powers is uh, really beset by difficulties. It's, uh, I was reading T.S. Eliot for some reason. So I, I was struck by, uh, in a dark wood, in a bramble, on the edge of a grimpen, where is no secure foothold and menaced by monsters, uh, which struck me as remarkably apt about the separation of powers then and now. <laughs> so uh, can, we, can we really conduct uh, Hamlet without an answer to these questions. I worry that we can't, and so I worry that this book is really the first volume of a three-volume set uh, that'll really that'll really give us the full picture of the separation of powers, and we won't have it until we have uh, those articles too. All right. The third thing. Uh, everything else about the book is amazing. Um, so, despite my quarrel with the title, despite my quarrel with the fact that the book is only a third of the book I wanted to read, uh, the book is just full of actually um, amazing uh, insights about the separation of powers, history, constitutional structure, some of which I think are, are part of the core of the thesis, many of which are just, just there as a little reward for the reader. So there's a discussion of self-pardons, a discussion of executive power and martial law, uh, a really great discussion of legislative procedure and the timing of bills and the pocket veto that suggests that it Everything I thought I understood about the pocket veto cases might be wrong, uh, sort of stashed in there. Uh, George Washington's views about the implementation of the Jay Treaty and how to think about the House's power to decide whether or not to appropriate money for a treaty. Um, every, I mean, every page of the book had a new, had a new treat and a new treasure, um, which I guess I need to read again before I even fully figure out everything I've learned from this book, but, but it's been a ton. Thank you.
So I have no quibble with the title of this book. Um, having met Sai on a couple of occasions, I know that he is far from imperial, but I think um, an apt subtitle for the book would probably be it's James Wilson's world that we're living in, so get used to it. And um, I think that this book is a tonic in many respects because it places the debate and Wilson's formative um, uh, position within it over the shape of the American executive front and center uh, once again. And it does so in a very, um, with, a, with a, a, a deep fidelity to the original sources. Not surprising given the fact that this book is an exercise in originalism. Um, but what an elegant exercise in originalism it is, and one that's characterized by uh, extremely self-aware passages like the following. And I hope you'll you'll indulge me if I if I read a wonderful line that jumped out at the very beginning of the book. A wag might suppose that attempting to discern the original contours of Article Two from the available founding materials is akin to predicting divine will by studying animal entrails in the manner of the Etruscans and Romans. While answers of some sort will be found if one insists on finding them, many will view the process as unedifying. But Sai is no wag, nor is he a butcher or a diviner. He is a lawyer, a scholar, and in both these callings, a disciplined originalist. To him, the contours of the national executive constituted in 1789 present themselves not in omens and vagaries, but in English, colonial, and early state institutions, in the discourse of the founding period, and above all, in the text of the Constitution itself. Needless to say, though, that the text of the Constitution itself presents challenges. We can scarcely read a dozen words into Article II before controversy arises. Is Article II's opening a legal nullity when it proclaims that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States? Or does the vesting clause carry any constitutional freight of its own? It's a question that goes to the very essence of executive power. Here, Sai broadly identifies three interpretive approaches that we might take. The first, and the one that Sai encourages us to adopt, is to take Article II's opening at face value. The vesting clause means what it says and says what it means when it says that the executive shall be vested in a president of the United States. It's a general grant of executive power that's qualified and augmented by other clauses of the Constitution. And so here, I think, um, his Article II arguments shadow box with the, the Claudius, who is more like Polonius hiding behind the curtain than presenting himself front and center in the drama. But danger, the danger with this reading is that through it, the vesting clause might mean virtually anything we want it to mean. To paraphrase a former president, it all depends on what the meaning of executive is. So to critics no less estimable than Daniel Webster, the vesting clause has invisible strings attached. We must read something along the lines of Article I's herein granted language into Article II so that the president only possesses powers expressly granted by that article. But an even more reductionist approach to the vesting clause is what Professor Matt Prakash might, title the t might term the title and number reading 
under which all the vesting power does is establish the name and number of the executive. Imperial from the beginning is a full-throated defense of the first of these approaches. Moreover, it's a scrupulously documented reconstruction of the original understanding of the American presidency. Sy seeks out the 18th century understanding of executive power and concludes that it encompasses the execution of laws, the management of foreign affairs, and the control of the military. There were powers, he notes, which required energy, vigilance, secrecy, and responsibility, all of which the Constitution attempts to institutionalize in the office of the presidency. So by now, it's probably no secret that I agree with many of Sy's conclusions and his interpretation of presidential power. But this is law school and not a love fest. And I do have a few bones to pick. To the extent that I disagree with Sy, I want to focus on two um, elements of his argument. Um, the first is his interpretation of the constitutional origins of the veto power. That is, to, to channel a sitting vice president, a big flipping deal, <laughs> because the veto power is perhaps the most assertive and direct check that the president can uh, um, assert against the uh, power of the legislature. Sy properly notes that the Declaration of Independence's first grievance was that George III had refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. But he takes this grievance exclusively at face value without looking at the prior iterations of the grievance itself. And those iterations of the grievance against George III, that is that he refused his assent to, to laws most wholesome and necessary for, for the public good, were actually not, was not um, a, a, a problem that George was not enacting into law laws passed by Parliament that were salutary to the colonies, but rather that George III was not asserting the royal veto, not asserting the royal negative against laws that were being passed by Parliament that were extra-constitutional in nature. In accordance with the colonial conception of the imperial constitution, certainly um, James Wilson's conception of the imperial constitution, um, to the king is entrusted the direction and management of the great machine of government. He makes war, he concludes peace, he forms alliances, he directs foreign commerce by his treaties with those nations with whom it is carried on. A familiar refrain when one considers the manner in which royal power was translated into executive power in the chief magistracy that, magistracy that was constituted by state constitutions in the form of state governors, and certainly in the form of the chief magistracy of the nation that was constituted in um, the Constitution of 1789. Wilson goes on, the king names the officers of government so that he can check every jarring movement in the administration. He has a negative on the different legislatures throughout his dominions so that he can prevent any repugnancy in their different laws. The connection and harmony between Great Britain and us, which it is her interest and ours mutually to cultivate, and on which her prosperity as well as ours so materially depends, 
will be better preserved by the operation of the legal prerogatives of the crown than by the exertion of an unlimited authority by parliament. The, the distinction between Sai's view of the uh, executive at the framing and my view of the executive, executive at the framing um, goes to the nature of the translation of the English inheritance. In a sense, the translation of monarchic power into the power of the president, which is not to say that the presidency is a kingly status by any means. In fact, James Wilson himself, again, back to James Wilson, but I do see him as a chief architect of Article II and the, the powers of the presidency, says um, very tellingly at the Constitutional Convention, we all know that a single magistrate is not a king. That is, the king in England in the, under the British Constitution is one iteration of the powers of a chief magistracy, whereas the Constitution uh, uh, convenes a new form of chief magistracy in, who, in which the executive powers that belonged to the king but are not singular to the king are, are, the, uh, are, are the powers that animate an extremely robust presidency. And it's in this context that Wilson reminds um, Edmund Randolph, who, who vigorously objects to having a, a vigorous executive, that the people of America did not oppose the British king, but the parliament. The opposition was not against a unity, but a corrupt multitude. And it was George III's passivity in the face of the corrupt multitude, his passivity and his failure to assert his kingly prerogatives, prerogatives, powers of the, of the veto, of the royal negative, um, that would be enshrined at the core of the American um, presidency. Um, this example of, of a respect in which uh, I disagree with, with Sai's reading um, is, uh, cuts to, uh, I think, a deeper limitation of the book, a book that is in many respects, uh, in many respects does come through on its many ambitions. Um, but it is a one-volume one book, not a three-volume book. And um, as Sai, again, tellingly notes in, in the introduction, this life is too short to spend 30 years and 7,000 pages on a single question of presidential power, um, invoking a, a, um, a comment in passing made by Justice Scalia. Um, the issue that, uh, that, that I, I take with his approach is um, that uh, it, it takes, in some respects, a, su a superficial reading of select texts, like the debates on the Constitution, without contextualizing those remarks in the broader uh, debate of the revolutionary era and the, uh, the, the, um, early, the, the period of early independence when the states proved to be laboratories in which experiments with executive power and limited government are at their most ambitious and mo most creative. Um, this is certainly not to say that I disagree with many of his conclusions, because I don't. Um, 
I do think, though, that um, some of them could have been uh, better corroborated by, uh, if not a broader reading, because I'm sure that Sai has read very deeply into these texts, then certainly by um, more deeply probing them in his analysis. So I'll leave it at that, and we can continue in the discussion. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, indulge me a little personal story. Uh, recently, my daughter posted on Instagram a funny picture. I thought it was funny. And a witty caption. Um, and one of her snarky 20-something friends writes in, are you trying to make a dad joke? And I sent her an email saying, what's a dad joke? And she said, you know, those jokes where everybody groans and nobody laughs and everybody's embarrassed. And I thought to quote Groucho Marx, uh, I resemble that remark. Um, and then two weeks ago, I was at a uh, session somewhat like this at NYU uh, discussing a couple of chapters of a forthcoming book uh, by Ganesh uh, Sitaraman, a professor at Vanderbilt, that in some structural ways is very uh, similar to Sai's book. This is a book about the founding era and what the framers and the founders thought of the question of wealth distribution and the attributes necessary for civic engagement. And um, Ganesh was asked, uh, who's your audience for this? And he said, you know, law professors and people who are interested in constitutional history and all that. And he said, and also dads. And I thought, what? And everybody kind of said, what do you mean dads? He says, you know, those middle-aged guys who like to read biographies and can't get enough of anything about the framers. And I thought, damn, I've got a phenotype. <laughs> you know, I, that's, that's me. So let me begin, because I'm not from Chicago, so I consider myself socialized, um, uh, with uh, the good, and the, before I get to the points of disagreement. Speaking as a dad, uh, this is a great book. <laughs> this is exactly what dads want. Uh, so if it were, we were closer to Father's Day, we would be uh, right in the market uh, sweet spot. Um, this is the kind of painstaking research. Of course, there could be more research, there could be more context, but this is a book that really illuminates how central the question of um, executive power was in the early debates and putting together the pieces of the debates on different components of it and also the early implementation is just, uh, it, it changes your views on um, how they, how the framers thought about this. And indeed, hold on, let me get the book. Uh, indeed, it strikes me that it changed size views. Um, I think that Sai went into this book, into this project, expecting to write something quite different uh, because the book begins with the project of the unitary executive which has a certain political valence and has had a certain uh, valence in constitutional debates in the United States recently and the title is Imperial from the Beginning and indeed the first few chapters uh, as has already been noted begin with a discussion of the relationship between the conception of the presidency and the model of the monarchy 
and indeed some uh, deep concerns that the monarchy was too weak in Britain relative to what we needed as an executive power in the United States. But by the time you get to the end of the book, and this is how I was going to conclude these remarks, then I got to the conclusion of the book, and it's, it's a killer. It says, after all, the book sketch of the, uh, of the president suggests the Philadelphia delegates were inconsistent, never quite settling on a theme or a direction for the executive. And I don't think that that's what animates the beginning of the book. It's not, or at least it didn't come across to this reader that that's what was going on. So this is a, this is wonderful. I mean, this is the stuff I love about being an academic. It's that you start down a project, you have an idea, you pursue it, and you end up in a different place because the world is more complex than you imagine going in. And if you're going to spend all this research and all this time, the worst possible thing that could happen is you end up exactly where you anticipated and right where you thought you were going to be at the beginning. And so um, in that sense, it's a, it's a great book. It's, it's well-written. It's easy to read. Every possible permutation on executive power, uh, as it was understood at the time, uh, is really laid out for you here. It's, it's, it's terrific. So what criticisms do I have? Well, I, I want to raise a different set of issues than the other commentators, because I'm much less invested in the original debates, and I'm much more of a constitutional lawyer. And I want to know, what, what's my takeaway? What do I do with this? What do I do with all this uh, knowledge that's here? Why is it important methodologically? I understand that we live in an era of originalism. I understand that Justice Scalia's intellectual weight is going to be with us for a very long time. I understand that those on the left have started to think that they can play Scalia light and claim that, you know, the 18th century uh, slaveholders shared all the values of the Warren court and then more. That's fine. You know, it's a theory. Um, and uh, it's one, it's absurd, but okay, it's a theory. Um, and. But what am I supposed to what am I supposed to make of this? So I've I've been to a number of talks. I've read a number of, of uh, works that have somewhat this methodology. So as I said a minute ago, uh, Ganesh Sudaraman has a book coming out in which he said, if you look at all the framers' writings on the question of what it meant to be a Republican citizen you will see that there is a sense of some basic uh, equality in resources so that you can engage in the civic project. And that ties into the uh, questions about uh, maldistribution of income, income inequality in today's world. Okay, that's a thesis. If you read Zephyr Teachout's book on the question of corruption, you find that the framers were overwhelmingly concerned with the corruption of public office, that this is one of the big lessons they took away from the colonial experience and from being subjects to the crown. And that's a major issue. If you read the work by my colleagues, uh, David Golov and, and Dan Hasebash, you'll find that the framers were obsessed with being one nation among nations, fully able to discharge the functions of nations at international law and be recognized as such. And there are other such books that deal with the federalism question. There are books that deal with interstate commerce as this driving force. There's others that deal with the need to do something about the Revolutionary War debt and to stabilize the monetary union. 
And if you take all of these, they all have more or less the same methodology. They do a deep dive. It's like the new biblical studies. Now that everything's online, you can pull one word and find that it appears in 28 different places. And then you can see how it's discussed in each place. And so they all have this methodology. And then they all come to a conclusion that because it was so central, it mu in their discussion, as they've laid out, it must have been the driving force. And it ranges how much of a driving force it is. The more modest ones, you know, they'll claim 25%, maybe a third. The more ambitious ones will claim this is 80, 90, sometimes 100% of driving it. But you don't have to do a lot of math to figure out that after a while you're selling more than 100% of the original intent. Now, it's possible to say that the framers were the Max Bialystoks of their era, right? The, the character from the producer who figured you can sell more than 100% if it's a losing proposition. And as King George III admirably and memorably said, you'll be back, soon you'll see. Uh, or at least that's how Hamilton tells it, uh, for those who have the joy of seeing the play. Um, and so if this was all going to be a failing proposition, you could sell shares in it quite easily and nobody's going to claim that they were swindled. But this thing succeeded. And so what do we do with all these competing impulses which all seem to explain something? And the answer, and this starts to emerge it, it's, it's fully reflected in the conclusion, uh, uh, that I, the passage I just read from the conclusion, but it starts to emerge about halfway through the book, is that these were not political theorists. They were well steeped in political theory. These were not people who were trying to come up with a comprehensive worldview. These were people who were politicians in a very difficult moment. And sometimes they had to sell this to, uh, to a public that was skeptical. Sometimes they had to overcome political oppositions. So they said lots of things. And they're not consistent among each other. And so the search for an abiding original meaning of the whole thing is an extremely difficult proposition. It's difficult for all sorts of reasons, including uh, a wonderful uh, former colleague of mine, and Doug Laycox just died this past week, uh, Hans Bada, who wrote, um, oh, oh, sorry, Doug. Uh, <laughs> but it, so Hans wrote a great series of articles on what was the original understanding of original understanding. Going back to canonical law, how did the how did the great scholars of canon understand what their original interpretations were supposed to mean? And then writing about the American revolutionaries about how they thought it. Because after all, we know one thing. We know that the Federalist Papers, which is now our Bible and this stuff, weren't published for decades afterwards. And that the founding generation didn't think that this was supposed to be either authoritative or binding. And so somehow we have a lot of uncertainty about how they viewed it. So that's, that's one problem, is what do we do with this? Because what we're going to get most likely, and, and Sai's uh, wonderful book confirms that even on something as core as executive power, we're going to get inconsistent results. We're going to get the, all the problems of attributing the collective intent, intent to a collective body. So that's one set of issues. The second one is even more difficult. What if we were able 
to discern the collective understanding at the time, whether we put it in the hands of the, of the drafters, the ratifiers, what, you know, however we find the right source of original intent. Um, how, do we, um, how do we deal with this? Well, let's talk about scale. Does that matter? Does it matter the transformation of the country? Does it matter? This is a, a concept I started to play with in some work on, on this notion that there are constitutional equilibria that emerge out of institutional arrangements. This idea that you know most of the stuff in constitutional law about how the government works doesn't get litigated. It doesn't get reduced to cases. It's different institutional actors learning to live with each other. And how does that emerge over time? Well, let's take the question of scale. In 1840, there were a grand total of 20,000 federal employees in the entire country. Today, there's uh, over 80,000 just in health and human services. Right? So that gives you an idea of the scale. Of the 20,000 in 1840, and this was consistent until the Civil War, of the 20,000, 14,000 worked in the post office. The post office was just a repository of patronage jobs. It was the only one. Uh, that basically existed at the time. And if you read some of the literature from the time, you can't quite understand the, the hatred, the level of hatred for the post office. You know, they really hated postal employees. And these were just corrupt federal officials who, who uh, knew a senator and, and collected a salary and did nothing much more. There was no mail. Come on. Um, so, uh, um, so they were, uh, so that was the scale of the country. So what does it mean when we translate to the current era? So let me give one, uh, one concrete example. Let me focus on one, on one power. Um, and for this part, I'm going to refer to, rely on an article I wrote last year with my son. So you see the dad theme comes back uh, full circle, right? Uh, uh, some people in the audience are my students and are groaning, uh, but that's okay. Um, so, uh, the declare war power, right? So we have this very formal separation of powers. The president executes it. The Congress has to declare it. And we know that almost immediately we abandoned that formality, that we had the quasi-war with France. We had all these mechanisms that uh, went into warlike activity that didn't fit the constitutional structure almost immediately. And Sy does a great job. This is stuff that I was not, even though I've looked at this before, I was not familiar with the range of sources he brought out uh, in support of the idea that even then, declaration of war of one state, the formal declaration, was but one of the forms of initiating hostilities, and that therefore there was a richer understanding that there could be other mechanisms, maybe executive unilateralism, maybe congressional action. There could be other mechanisms that basically initiated the war without the full formal trappings of the declaration of war, which is the only part that the Constitution seems to uh, actually address. But one of the points that I wrote about a year ago that really struck me was if you go back to these original debates, not about the constitutional ratification, but about the implementation of war powers in the young republic, what you find is that a lot of them took place not around the declare war uh, power, but around the budgetary issue. And the Constitution actually does something quite significant that doesn't feature quite centrally in the constitutional debates, or at least in Madison's notes and, the, and, the, and what we have. 
and that is that they put the military power on a very tight time frame. And so it forces the executive to come back to the Congress. So it's a different form of engagement than what looks to be the formality of the declaration of war. Now that's important because it gives a logic to the quasi-war with France, and it means that naval engagements of that sort were actually very high profile, because one of the big debates early on in the United States, in the Congress, was should we have what was called a blue water navy, or should we have a coast guard? And by that it was meant should we have small ships that basically ran out of ports, or should we have this national infrastructure with the ability to, though, to, get, to engage in foreign wars, to project force? And this was a huge debate, and the debate was always posed in budgetary terms. Well, so here, uh, here's some, some budgetary statistics. Small war, by our standards, by standards of American history, Spanish-American War. Spanish-American War cost about 1.1% of our GDP. Uh, in the era that it was handled. But in, uh, in, that's in its peak year of 1899. But in 1899, the entire military budget was 1.5% of GDP, which means that paying for the Spanish-American War was a huge undertaking, even if we don't have all the full trappings of congressional engagement on the war issue, we still have real congressional oversight over the actual budgetary implications of it. By the time of the first Gulf War, the Gulf War had a marginal cost of 0.3 of GDP, percent of GDP, out of a defense budget in 1991, that is 100 years after the Spanish-American War, that was 4.6% of GDP. That means the Gulf War could be paid for, the first Gulf War could be paid for out of pocket change that the, mil that the standing military had. So now you have a very different relationship between the executive and Congress, but created by the fact that we have a standing military and a military budget that's carried from year to year that completely, sorry, that completely dwarfs anything that would have existed earlier on in our history. So if we go on and compare a few others, um, in, uh, in 2011, we undertook what, in my view, is one of our most disastrous foreign policy uh, uh, endeavors of, of, recent of any time. We overthrew a Libyan state and left a failed state. Well, what did that cost? Uh, that cost 1.1 billion. That was a, a cheap disaster, right? 1.1 billion, and at the time, our baseline defense budget, our, our defense budget was $768 billion. It's not even a blip to overthrow, or you know, if you want to go nuts on this, uh, it cost $122 million to, over, to invade Grenada. Uh, who knew it even cost that much? Which is about the same as we spent that year to upgrade the broadcasting facilities of Voice of America in, uh, in, where was it? in Sri Lanka and Botswana. So this is, all of a sudden, we can do military endeavors in a way that was unanticipated. So, I try to think what's my takeaway from how the framers thought about the declare war when immediately they moved over into a, an era of budgetary constraints 
And from that, we've moved to a system that, where the budgetary constraints are non-existent because we can have deficit funding. And as we know, George Bush reduced taxes when we began uh, our most recent war in Iraq. So to, to just sum up, you know, <clears throat> I love this stuff. You know, this is great. It's great to read. It's, you learn, and you're just overwhelmed by the erudition. And then the constitutional lawyer in me says, what do I do with this? And what do I do with it? Because there's a lot of stories like this that they were trying to do everything at the time. They were making it up as they were going along, and they were putting forward a lot of arguments in the original period. And then I worry, what does it say about the way our society has evolved? And it's a real tribute to the book that, from the title and from the beginning of the book, I think Sai went into it thinking that the, that the answer to the first would be the answer to all three. And I think he comes out wondering. Well, I'm, I'm tremendously uh, honored uh, to be here today. I want to thank the dean for uh, deciding to uh, throw a book panel for my book. I'd like to thank George for organizing the panel. George Rutherman, my next door neighbor, uh, who worked tirelessly to, to get this together. I'd like to thank the panelists, of course, for coming all the way here and for reading the book. It makes you part of the select few in this country to have read the book. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for coming today. Uh, it's, it's quite gratifying. I'm, I'm not going to try to respond to everything, uh, primarily because I can't. I don't have good answers to all the points and questions raised. So I'll just, I'll just speak to a couple of them, and then we'll you know, open it up to questions, and we'll, you know, we'll get to the, uh, the libations and other refreshments that we have to, uh, to make this evening more pleasant. Um, so my good friend Will, I think you know, the, the article that we were going to write, it's a case of addition by subtraction. Uh, you writing the, the article alone is, was better than us writing it together. So uh, in, in a way, uh, uh, the article was better off having you, having you having to do it by yourself. In terms of the title of the book, um, the title came, up at, came, at, came to me at the end. It wasn't uh, the idea from the beginning to write a book that said the presidency was extremely powerful. Um, it came after thinking about what people were saying about the presidency uh, at the time of the Constitution, and what people did with respect to the presidency in the first several years. And so the, the first chapter makes the case for why uh, the presidency was something of a monarchy, primarily by looking to what people said at the time, uh, both at the Constitutional Convention and in the state conventions, uh, what foreigners said about the presidency, uh, and what 
members of Congress tried to do with respect to the presidency uh, in the first several Congresses. And so it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, uh, the, th the thought wasn't that I was going to write a book that said the presidency was incredibly strong. Uh, I thought there were aspects of the presidency that were strong, and I thought there were aspects of the presidency that were weaker um, when I started. Um, I learned more about the book, over, uh, more about the presidency over time, as, as uh, Professor Zakharov mentioned. I, you know, I, I didn't have the full picture in mind when I started the book. And he's quite right that uh, my view of the presidency changed, changed over time, but I'll, I'll get to that point later. Um, in terms of uh, Will's um, suggestion that to really understand executive power, you need to understand congressional power, and I think that's right, and, and maybe, the, you know, maybe there needs to be a trilogy. Maybe this needs to be like you know, the Lord of the Rings or something. Uh, it, it already feels that way for me. It already feels like a saga. Um, I tried to uh, examine congressional power in the book. Maybe I didn't do as good a job as, as I should have. I, I will say that uh, Will is quite right that the, you know, maybe 10 years ago I had the view that if something was given uh, to the Congress, it wasn't with the President, and if something was given to the President, it wasn't with the Congress. And I said as much in an article with Michael Ramsey called The Executive Power Over Foreign Affairs. But the book actually uh, steps away from that claim, and I, I think actually it's much more complicated. I think it it's quite possible and indeed quite probable that uh, Congress and the executive branch sometimes share authority, just like the Judiciary and Congress share authority. I think Will mentioned the Judiciary Act um, and the fact that Congress sometimes laid rules down, but I think the court has told us that sometimes uh, the court can make up the rules that Congress chose not to lay down, and I think that's probably true with respect to presidential power in several respects as well. So I didn't you know, I, that was a sort of a change in, in my view over time. I don't think there's a strict separation of powers. I think you really need to think about uh, executive power and then think about congressional power and ask if there's an overlap. Will's right that there's a discussion in the book about the extent to which Congress can regulate presidential power. And I, I came to the conclusion that Congress can regulate law execution by just deciding how the law to be executed. And when they do that, um, the president has to honor their commands uh, under the Take Care Clause. With respect to the military, I think uh, Congress has sweeping authority by virtue of its grants uh, of authority in Article I, having to do with the Declare War Clause, having to do with Congress's authority to regulate um, the military. It's the power to, to make rules for the government and regulation of the military. Um, and its various other powers over the military. So with respect to those two things, law execution and the military, I think Congress has complete authority to specify how laws will be executed uh, and to uh, specify uh, uh, how the military is going to be regulated. Um, my claim is that they didn't have that sort of sweeping authority. Congress doesn't have that sort of sweeping authority over the president more generally. And um, I tried to draw a distinction between the types of uh, powers given to uh, state legislatures. In state constitutions, they specifically said repeatedly um, here are the governor's powers, but it's subject to law. They actually had provisions in there indicating that this was sort of a, a default rule. It was defeasible by statute. There's nothing like that in the Constitution, and I don't believe that the Necessary and Proper Clause can be read in that way, right? It's a power to enact laws necessary and proper for carrying into execution uh, the powers of the government, not uh, to, to take them away. And if you believe that you know, Congress has complete authority to regulate presidential powers. You've got to think the same thing about the court, right, or the courts more generally, which would, which would suggest that Congress can specify the outcomes in cases and, 
and other sorts of things. And that might be right, but it's, it's not what we think about when we think about the court. Congress has lots of authority over, uh, over the courts by virtue of particular language in Article Three, but it doesn't extend to specifying judgments and cases, uh, at least not under uh, current understandings. Um, but Will's right, I think, to really have a sense of um, all that the president can do, you really need to have a complete theory of what Congress can do. Um, Pro Professor Helfman, um, um, uh, her very gracious comments, I, you know, I, um, I'm sure she's right that I, I, I probably should have known more about certain aspects of the English Crown and the state executives, and um, I will take, that, you know, take her suggestion up for the second volume of the trilogy, uh, and I, you know, I look forward to talking to her more about where she thinks I've, I've made a misstep. Um, Professor uh, Izakarov, um, he quotes you something from the end of the book, and I, I think he, I'm not sure, but he may have misconstrued it. My point in the book was sometimes the president's powerful and sometimes he's not. Um, but the overall picture is of a powerful executive, more powerful than any state executive, more powerful um, uh, than many European monarchs. And that's why people drew the comparison to a monarch. Um, so it's not, it's not so much that they just didn't know what they were doing um, and they, you know, they were contradictory conclusions. It's that at the convention, you see an ebb and flow of executive power. Um, but by the end of the convention, the president's powerful in some respects and weak in others. He's powerful with respect to law execution. Uh, he's weak with respect to the military. Uh, he's powerful with respect to the pardon power. He can, you know, President Trump or President Clinton can just sign an order freeing everybody from the prison. And there's nothing that can be done, right? It's, it'd be totally valid. Um, and in fact, executives had done this in England uh, and in America. Um, George Washington issued lots of uh, almost, um, almost complete pardons to celebrate you know, Independence Day, to celebrate the, the alliance with France while he was commander in chief. And these were general pardons. They weren't given to particular people. So that's a, that's a very powerful uh, power, and it's the, a power that's vested in the, the, in the president. So it's, it's not so much that they didn't know what they were doing and, you know, they, um, um, you know, they weren't sure what they were doing. I think, you know, when you have a legislative body, you expect uh, things to ebb and flow, and, and, and the, end, the end result is a constitution that creates a strong presidency in some respects and a weak uh, presidency in others. And then I'll just make one final point about the quasi-war. I, th I think Professor Zakharov perhaps misunderstands my, my claim about the declare war clause. The declare war clause was a power to decide whether to go to war. And, and you could go to war in many different ways in the 18th century. The most common way was to just start the war. So if you invaded another country, you had declared war, whether or not you issued something called a formal declaration of war. Um, because the Constitution grants that authority to Congress, our declarations of war have to take a textual form. And because um, the Constitution is best read, read as not granting that power to the executive, notwithstanding the grant of executive power, it means that Congress alone has the power to decide whether to wage war. Is the quasi-war to the contrary? No, because Congress passed statutes authorizing the quasi-war. There was no statute saying that we are declaring war against France in the uh, late 18th century but there are statutes authorizing hostilities against French naval vessels. And that was a declaration of war, even though it doesn't use the term. So the, the, one, of the, one of the takeaways is you don't need to use the word I declare war or we declare war to declare war. And once you realize that, there are lots of statutes authorizing the use of military force that were understood as declarations of war. And so one of the interesting things I found out is 
But if you, if you go back to early tallies of, of declared wars, you have the wars against Tripoli and Algeria listed as declared wars, even though the statutes authorized them don't use the words declared war. So nowadays we tend to think if they don't have the magic words declare war, it's not a declaration of war. But that's just not the understanding that they had regarding what was or what was not a declaration of war. So the quasi-war actually is, is part of, the, is, I think, evidence in favor of the view that Congress has um, complete authority uh, to decide whether to wage war, because we were, in effect, waging a limited war with France, as the Supreme Court in several cases from that time recognized. So anyway, my, my, uh, you know, I want to make clear I'm very gratified uh, that you're all here today, and uh, thank you. Thank you, Sai. We have an opportunity for questions. I think uh, Sai and I might disagree on this, but I think the original conception was that the tight time frame on the military budget was a requirement that the president, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons that I think we have this, uh, you have an incorrect reading of the book, is uh, <laughs> that, uh, um, that once you allow for multiple different kinds of acts to be the declaration of war, it turns out that not all of them are from the legislature, that some of them can be invoked presidentially, such as landing troops in another country before there is actually a declaration. Uh, we now have the, uh, the War Powers Act, and so there's supposed to be a time frame, but that can be manipulated in certain ways. Um, I think that what, what the conception was, was that if there was any serious military engagement or the creation of a standing, uh, the need to create an army for a real war or a navy, that that would force the president to be in constant dialogue with Congress. And I think that the, that the lesson of the Iraq engagement was that those questions about the budgetary implications of it didn't happen for many years after uh, we were already deeply involved in the war. Now, there's the AUMF, the Authorization of the Use of Military Force, which is, and I'm sure this is your position on that, that that, that serves as a declaration of war by or an approval of the war power by Congress. I fully agree with that. But the the budgetary constraint is what I find most interesting, because historically there were two points of resistance to uh, presidents trying to go to war. One was the budgetary implications, and you see this in Washington's discussion of the Navy, and you see it even in Washington's discussion of how to uh, deal with things like the like Shays' Rebellion in the United States. And the second was every time we've had a draft in this country, because we needed soldiers to fight these wars, we've had popular unrest. We had that in the late colonial period. We had that in the uh, 
in the early days of the Republic. We certainly had it in the Civil War riots. You know, I came of age in the 1960s, which was all the product of resistance to uh, the conscription of kids to go to Vietnam. And uh, uh, now you, you don't want foot soldiers. You don't want conscripts. They're not useful. And no military wants them on the battlefield because they'll get kidnapped or something of that sort. They're a liability. So the, the points of sort of structured resistance between the society and the executive that partially were about the budgetary account, partially were about the social impact of war, partially were about uh, the formal constitutional allocation of, of authority, that has largely dropped out, and it means we have a different kind of war-making power in the executive than I think was anticipated uh, 200 years ago. I don't know if you agree with that. I, 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 I do agree with that, and I think, I mean, I think one way of understanding the question is, or one way of understanding Professor Zakharov's point, and you, know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is if you've got a small war, the executive branch can pay for it out of the general DOD budget, but if it's much bigger, they're going to have to go for a supplemental appropriation to Congress and ask for more money. And so uh, given how big the DOD budget is from year to year, um, they're going to be able to fight some small wars without having to go to Congress. It's only when they fight these rather large wars that they then have to go to Congress. Um, you know, when you have a, an army that's only 1,000 men, which is, I think, the size of the original army in, in 1789, if you want to do anything, you kind of do need to go to Congress every single time you want to fight a war against Indians or, you know, against, against other, other nations. So, you know, the, it is true the fact that you have this wonderful military machine, I think as Madeleine, Madeleine Albright once put it, gives you options, right? And it makes it, it, makes it more, uh, more likely that the president's going to see, that, uh, see the wisdom in, in using military force and is going to think perhaps that, they don't, that he or she doesn't have to go to Congress to get approval. Yeah, please. Okay. So uh, I have a bit, of, I guess, I have a bit of a comparative question, I guess. So, so the American model of presidential power, as you described it, was basically transported to Latin America in the early 19th century. The Constitution chose very similar provision, tried the same model, and it was a really big failure, right? So these were presidents that basically became dictators. They abandoned, they abolished their parliaments, and so I guess what made me wonder, uh, I haven't read I mean, there are a lot of constraints that are in the Constitution. Whether we you know, choose to follow them or not is another question, right? The president can't appropriate. The president can't create offices. The president can't create institutions. The president can't create a military. Under the Constitution, he couldn't wage war without first going to Congress. Um, the president's obliged, I think, implicitly to honor judicial judgments, that is to say, to enforce them even if he disagrees with them. That's, that's Will's article, The Judgment Power, in the Georgetown Law Journal, recommended to to all. 
Um, so there, there are lots of constraints in the Constitution on the president. It's just the claim, one of the claims in the book is that notwithstanding those com, uh, constraints, the president's still very powerful and more powerful than, again, any executive at the time in America and more powerful than many uh, you know, executives in, in Europe. So it's, you know, it's like two sides of the same coin, right? There, there, there is cons- considerable power with the president, but there's no, it's not unlimited power. Now, you know, why, why haven't we descended into a, you know, into a, uh, why don't we have the sort of dictatorships that we have in Latin, you know, Latin America? I think Professor Zakharov knows about that more than I do. Um, but I suspect in part it's because the, uh, you know, to, to some extent at least, the executive, you know, our constitution has worked. I don't know what the provisions of those constitutions say about emergencies, but, um, you know, we had a president, a very good president. President Lincoln did all kinds of things during the Civil War. He was called a dictator and far worse for doing them. But things reverted back to normal right after the war. Um, we didn't have a permanent state where the president could appropriate money and increase the size of the army and put people in jail because they were criticizing him, et cetera. Um, and so I, I suppose that whatever excesses we've had in time of war have, um, have received. We haven't had a, a situation where, you know, it hasn't been a one-way ratchet, to, to quote some scholars. Uh, so, you know, let me, ask, let me take that to ask you a question because it, it struck me in reading the book. Um, so there's this guy who keeps showing up in your, te- in your narrative who plays a really kind of interesting role. His name is George Washington. And at various points in the book, you come and you say, so, so it could have gone either way on this particular issue, and Washington had a certain probity, or what seemed to unify the con- these radically different conceptions of the executive was that they ultimately all imagined that it would look like Washington. And there was, there is that sense of the founder, you know, the, the, it's the Nelson Mandela story in, uh, in South Africa. It's, I'm from Argentina. It's the tragedy that, that San Martin left and who was the decent figure in, in South America and never held office. And, um, I just wondered, because it, it came up, I was, at one point I was counting and then I lost count, but there are certain moments where debates get decisive and then all of a sudden Washington, the image of Washington and his personal probity sort of emerges in the book. Well, there are several delegates who look at the Constitution after the fact and say um, that delegates, you know, other delegates of the convention formed Article Two, understanding that President... You know, that George Washington was going to be the first president, and that let them, that caused them to let let their guard down. <laughs> that they that they created an office more powerful than it ought to have been. And so these were people that were critical of Article Two, thought it was too powerful, and they said, because people understood that he was going to be the first president, they they created an office that would fit, you know, that would be fit for a virtuous man, but not for a knave. And not all presidents are going to be uh, virtuous people. They're, some of them are going to be knaves. And so they said this sort of thing. Um, bemoaning the fact that Article 2 was stronger than they had hoped it would be. Um, the book does talk a, a lot about what President Washington did as president. Um, I, I tried not to, to solely rely on what he did to, to elucidate various aspects of Article 2, but I suppose it's possible that one, you know, I, I think one, one friendly critic has said, you know, it's, it's more about Washington's presidency than it is about Article 2. I don't think that's quite right, but uh, it's, it's out there. 
So can I jump in first? So I'm I think one uh, maybe point of disagreement or just a different way of looking at the world that's marking the two of you and also uh, illuminated a little bit by Mila's question is different ways in which the Constitution can control presidential power. So there's like the formal rules, right? So there's a formal answer to why don't our presidents dissolve parliament, right? Which is that the Constitution actually addresses that uh, in Article 3, Section 3 and gives the president power to convene Congress but it can only dissolve Congress the two houses disagree about when to dissolve, meaning if they both want to be there, the president has no power to dissolve them, right? But there's a sense, we all have a sense that's like not all the picture, right? Because there are lots of things that you can write down on paper, I'm sure lots of countries have, that then don't happen. And so then, and, and even the framers know that too, which is a, so this is also in the dad books, right? The layers of like, what else is supposed to be in there to ensure that the Constitution gets followed? James Madison calls it parchment barriers or ambition counteracting ambition. And sometimes the rules we're interested in, while they're partly formal rules, seem to be operating at the next level down, right? They, they are the, the uh, all the provisions about the power of the purse are designed to ensure, you know, the Constitution already says when the president can and can't declare war. So you shouldn't really need anything more than that. But then, just in case, we also make sure the president doesn't have money to declare war in case he decides to go around declaring war when he shouldn't. So there's sort of like the, the monetary thing. Then the fact that they set up other branches that might have an incentive to, to disagree, the fact that there are courts that can issue things, the fact that there's another set of rules that might tell the people in the army when they're supposed to be the president, those all occupy sort of like the next couple levels. And then maybe there's social norms after, or political norms after that. So the fact that George Washington did a bunch of things in a particular way that caused everybody to, be, to think he did pretty well, then might be the answer to some of these questions for a while, right? George Washington hands over power uh, both, both in, the, in the sense of not running for a third term and in the sense of just standing down and letting somebody else take the seat, which, again, wasn't really an open question from the text of the Constitution, but from the, you know, how's it going to work in practice, you're not totally sure it's going to happen until George Washington does it. As I understand, side, I'd mostly be interested in question number one, because actually even just figuring out what is the text and the, and the Constitution formally required turns out to be really hard and really complicated, and even today, everybody's going around brandishing Article Two at one another. Uh, and I understand uh, Sam's impatience, maybe, or, or dissatisfaction with that to be that there's a sense that, that those other questions matter too, and the text isn't totally irrelevant to them either. And so, so what's going on there? And that may just be uh, we have different sort of how far down the, the level of political disorder we've descended. Uh, but let me put Mila's question in, in a very concrete way from, from a story you tell in your book, which I didn't know before. Um, so there's a raging smallpox epidemic in, in Philadelphia, and it's time for Congress to get together. Well, only an idiot puts all the, Congress, all the leaders of the country in a place where there's a raging smallpox epidemic. And so there's a, there's a question about what do we do about this, and Washington says the obvious thing to do is to, hold the, is to have the Congress convene someplace else. And immediately... They get into a debate on the text of the Constitution and the, and the constitutional imperative as to how this is done. And Washington finally, on your account, seems to throw up his hands and say, this is absurd I, that I can't do anything about it. Let them all die of smallpox, basically. <laughs> and, and, uh, that, that's not in your book, but that's, that seems to be the conclusion. That never would have happened in Argentina. <laughs> you know? I mean, they may have called them in to, to have smallpox on purpose, but the, the idea that, <laughs> that, that the head of state would not have had that authority and that the head of state, the first one, would have thought to construct this narrative out of constitutional text, to my, to my mind, I think this is the, the import of Neil's question, it's just an extraordinary moment. 
that, that, it's an extraordinary, it is an extraordinary moment, but I think Sam has it a little off. So there, the, the president has the power to convene Congress. Congress, by statute, decides where it's going to meet. And, and they're scheduled to meet in Philadelphia, and it's a problem because it's, it's yellow fever. I don't know yellow if it's fever, small, right, smallpox. Right, yellow fever, right. I don't really know the difference, but it sounds different. And um, so he asked for advice from his cabinet members. He asked for advice from Madison. He asked for advice from the Speaker of the House. And they all tell him that he can't do anything, that he can't you know, tell Congress to meet somewhere else. But Hamilton you know, is too clever, and he says, well, you can't tell them what to do. You don't have this emergency power to to override the statute, but you can just tell them it would be nice if you met somewhere else and suggest another place and you can be there, and that's what he does. And that's their workaround to the, to the, to the problem. So he doesn't just sort of say, like, you know, I mean, there, there was a way for him to solve the problem without doing anything extra constitutional, and, and that's what he did. Now, I, I use the story to suggest the president doesn't have an emergency power, because if he can't even tell Congress that they have to meet somewhere else as a legal matter. He doesn't have the authority to suspend habeas corpus or expend funds without an appropriation or, you know, increase the size of the army. Um, so it, it is, it's, it's an extraordinary, you know, moment, but it, I think it shows their dedication to the limits uh, of, you know, the limits established by the Constitution. And maybe that's just different from the culture of certain South American countries. I don't, I don't know. I don't know the reason why. Uh, other countries have had problems with presidential systems. I've heard it said, and it seems to be true anecdotally that there there seems to be problems with some countries. Um, but I, I can't you know I can't tell you whether it's a problem with the text, a problem with the culture, or a problem with both. Right? They might have a provision which says the president can can you know prorogue the parliament. The president here can't you know dismiss or dissolve Congress. All he can do is just you know. He, he can't, he can end the session, but the, the, the Congress still continues, right? It just meets again. He can't just say, we're going to end, you know, I don't like this Congress, we're going to end this Congress and have new elections, right? Which at one time, I think the English, the English crown could do. Well, I, you know, that's a very interesting episode because Jefferson does what you said. He he sends the Navy to the Mediterranean to protect it against, I think it's Tripoli's pirates. And then um, they engage with Tripoli's ships, and he then writes to Congress and says, you know, um, I need your authority to do, to take measures beyond beyond purely defensive measures here. And they, they pass a statute authorizing the use of the Navy against against Tripoli. And so it's it's an odd situation because he's there's there's a there's a fealty to the to the constitutional norm in him going to Congress and saying I need your authority. But the the, the subterfuge is him sending the, the fleet to the Mediterranean in the first place and I think telling them to actively engage with Tripoli's ships. So he's basically on the one hand saying Congress has authority over over declarations of war so I can't engage in offensive operations. But it seems like he's telling these ships to engage in offensive operations. And, you know, I think, I think it's the, you know, what is it? 
you know, there's that statement about hypocrisy and vice and virtue, and I think this is a situation where, where Jefferson's being a hypocrite, but he's doing so in a way that is trying to at least show fealty to the Constitution in some sort of backhanded way. And I guess what I'd say more generally is, you know, the executive's going to violate the law, um, given the number of, you know, interactions with the law it has, just like all of us do. I don't, I don't think, I think it's a bad idea for the executive to, to violate the Constitution, and I think Jefferson did, but at least his public pronouncements were consistent with the Constitution, whatever his private orders to the Navy, uh, you know, whatever the content of those private orders to the Navy. And if, if I'm not mistaken, in that incident, he had he had um, legitimate cause because um, the uh, the Bashaw of the of the Tripolitan states had um, sent someone to chop down the um, U.S. flagpole at the American Embassy there, um, which Jefferson construed as an, a declaration of war on part of the Tripolitan states. So he had necessity, military, naval necessity on his side. Well, so it's an interesting, it was an interesting debate at the time. Jefferson actually publicly took the position that even if another nation declares war in the United States, which Tripoli had, Mm -hmm. Congress still needed to declare war in response in order for the U.S. to wage offensive war against Tripoli. And that was his public position. And and it was in part his public position because that was Washington's position. When we were, you know, Indian tribes of various sorts declared war against the United States, and Washington said, you know, in letters to governors, you can't wage war, you can't invade these Indian tribes until Congress declares war. And that was the view of the entire cabinet during the Washington administration. And so it's not surprising that Jefferson took that position publicly before Congress, and that's why Congress passed the statute. Hamilton took the view that you took, which was, it doesn't make any sense to say that one nation is at war with us, but we're not at war with them. <laughs> and so that if, if another nation declares war in the United States, formally or informally, either by a piece of paper or by waging war, the president doesn't need to do anything. He doesn't need to go to Congress. He just needs to, to wage war. The, the problem with that view is it's inconsistent with every single declaration of war until, World, you know, until the Vietnam War or the Korean War. In World War II, we declared war six times. Uh, I think always after another nation declared war against us. And that was just true for all those wars, right? The War of 1812, Madison's statement says, we're in a state of, you know, England is in a state of war with the United States, we're in a state of peace with them. He expressly says that, and he asked Congress to declare war. So this happened repeatedly. Hamilton took the view that you took, but Jefferson publicly didn't. And I don't think he privately had that view. I think he actually thought he had to go to Congress. He was just violating the Constitution because he had served... I think he had served as Secretary of Foreign Affairs or, or Ambassador for a while during the Article of Confederation, and he was upset that we were paying tribute to the to the Barbary Coast states to uh, get them not to take our uh, citizens hostage, and he wanted to punish them. He wanted to punish them, you know, in 1785 and 86, and this was his chance. And uh, presidents know that if you, you know, if you can, you know, put your troops in the right places, you can get a war started. And then you can get Congress to approve it after the fact, right? That's what that's what Pre- President Polk did in the Mexican American. So, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I, th- that also that, that also makes me wonder. So, uh, I guess one other difference between the legislative branch and the executive branch is the legislative branch can only act formally. You know, they just like all they all they can do is sit around and pass laws. They don't really have. Whereas the executive branch, I th- sort of what both the question and size answer is hinting at, can also just act and not really worry about the formalities, which is why we have to, 
you don't have to, we have to ask this question about the president. Like, what should we do if the president goes and attacks another country without a formal declaration of war? Do we call that a declaration of war? Do we just say that's a thing that happened? And it seems like it also gives the executive this advantage, let's say, that he can, he can or she can just change the facts on the ground and force Congress to do whatever, you know, to do things, whereas Congress can't do the reverse. Is that anywhere in this picture? Is that just uh, a sort of strange fact of life? Well, it's certainly the case that the executive can do things and you know, present a fait accompli to Congress, but then it's just up to Congress to decide what to do, right? It's not, you know, there, there are certain sort of cultural or, you know, phenomenon rally around the flag effect, other things that get Congress to want to support a war. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not inevitable, right, that whenever the executive starts a war that Congress will choose to uh, choose to approve it, right? There have been sort of wars in the recent past where Congress refused to approve, right? The Libyan War. I think there were resolutions in Congress and Congress well, let me ask decided not to pass. The president has the opportunity to violate the Constitution. It's actually possible for the president to, like, commit a bunch of forces abroad or do something that needs doing and then say, oops, that was unlawful, I, I shouldn't have done it, and you, you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which Congress doesn't even have that ability, right? Congress, if they try to pass a statute that's totally unconstitutional, it won't work. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't have any legal force if it's contrary to the Constitution. So the president actually has sort of this, this option to break the law that Congress doesn't have. I agree. I think it's easier for one person to break the law than a collective to do so. But I mean, I, don't, I, think, it's, I think it's clear that Congress can violate the Constitution as well. Uh, its violation or the efficacy of it turns on the actions of other people, typically. Right. Um, but that's true for the president as well, right? Jefferson wasn't, you know, captaining the ship in the Mediterranean, right? He, <laughs> he sent people out there, and they chose to follow the orders, you know, either because they were, in, you know, not aware of the constitutional issue or choose, chose to ignore it. So, you know, the president can't really do a lot by himself, and, and, you know, everything he does depends on, you know, the recognition of someone else, right? He can issue a pardon, but if the jailer decides I'm not going to honor it, you know, it's not obvious what he's going to do. Is he going to go down to the jail and open it up himself, you know, in the face of all the guards? So you're right that it's, it's far easier for the executive to take action, and, and generally the executive minions will uh, follow his or her orders, but um, he's, he's not unique in his ability to violate the Constitution. He's just, he just uh, is able to do so, do so more easily, I think. In 2006, then-Senator Obama uh, proposed a resolution of the Congress that there be no troops uh, deployed in the surge in Iraq. I think that was clearly unconstitutional um, as invading the, uh, the powers of the executive. Uh, I suppose the executive could have just decided not to obey it. Uh, that's your... I mean, that does happen all the time, right? President Obama has indeed learned that lesson and failed to obey the war powers resolution repeatedly, which maybe is unconstitutional. But I like well, size. On these profound issues, we can conclude. Let me thank the panelists, Sai, and the audience. Thank you.